You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. I want you to open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 5. And if you've been following along this summer, we have been looking at the one epic story of the Bible. Did you know the Bible only has one epic story? And so when we open to whatever page of the Bible that we're looking at, we are looking at just the unfolding story of the epic story of the gospel. And we're learning that every page contains the epic story of Jesus. It also contains your epic story. So if I do my job right, you do your job right, you're going to see the epic story of the gospel, you're going to see the epic story of Jesus, and you're going to see your epic story right here in 1 Kings. And um, let me tell you where we're headed uh, right now. If you were with us uh, last time we were together, we were in the seventh book of the Bible. That was 1 Samuel. And uh, we learned at that point the promise. The promise was in peril because there was a giant that came out with a sword and David came out with a stone and the giant brought the sword to the rock fight and so he lost. And so now we fast forward a little bit and um, what happened in the second part of 1 Samuel was David became king. He patiently waited for God to remove Saul. We open up to 2 Samuel. It's all about the reign of David and under the reign of David the whole kingdom flourishes and everything's wonderful and growing and we're seeing the promise fulfilled. And then David wants to build a house for the Lord. And God says, no, you can't, but your son can. Then we open up 1 Kings, and it's all about the story of David's son, Solomon. And so we're going to find out that Solomon wanted to build this house for the Lord. So let's pick up the story in 1 Kings 5, beginning in verse 3. Solomon says, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Verse 4. Now let me tell you, verse 4 is one of the most epic verses in the Bible, but you won't pick it up when I read it. Let me tell you why. Verse 4 says, But now, that is not an insignificant now. It's like now. Finally now, now, after nine chapters of the Bible, now, after thousands of years of fallenness, now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. Underline the word rest in your Bible. You like that word? That's one of my favorite words. Rest. Is that one of your favorite words? That's great. Is that the way your week went, by the way? It's just all you did all week long was rest, right? took a nap every day, came to church. You're so rested and revitalized and you're not having trouble staying awake in the middle of a sermon on First Kings. Here you are. And not so much? That, that wasn't your week? Oh, you, the Lord didn't give you rest on every side? Well, you should have been living back in the Old Testament. Let's see, let's see what happened after that. It says, there is neither adversary nor misfortune. Again, is that the way your week went? You didn't face any adversaries whatsoever. Everybody was just cheering you on, patting you on the back, saying you're the greatest. I want to be your friend. Here's some money. I mean, is, is that the way your week went? Nor misfortune. No flat tires, no flooded basements. All the kids obeyed perfectly. No marital conflict. Is that the way you're... You, not, no, no. 
Well, that's the way that Solomon's day was going. He was having a great week when all this was going on. But all of it took place after thousands of years of conflict and facing giants and being in slavery. The people of God were in slavery. Remember, God had to make a path for the promise. And so verse 4 is telling us, you know what verse 4 is telling us? The promise has been fulfilled. What's happened? Remember the promise? Abraham was promised that he would be blessed and that he would become a great nation through his descendants. Solomon is one of his descendants. So they're living in the land that God promised, the promised land. There are no more enemies to fight. There's rest on every side. Do you know what happened in verse 4? God's saying, I kept my promise. And God keeps his promises. That's what we learned from verse 4. So, because things were going so well, Solomon in verse 5 says, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. So, today we're going to look at the epic significance of this. Do you see this? This, what is this? This is the temple. You correctly identified the temple, also known as the house of the Lord, the dwelling place of God. Now, this particular model has been sitting on my desk all week as I've been thinking and studying about the temple. And it was in pieces when I found it because I bought it in Israel when I was in April. It's a puzzle. I brought it, I brought it home to Scott and I gave it to Scott. And about an hour later, it came back and it looked like this. And it was not in pieces anymore. And it took him less time to build it than Solomon. It only took him about seven minutes. It took Solomon seven years to build this thing. And yet, if you study, this is what I've done all week long. I've been studying everything there is to know about the temple. And here's some of the things that I learned. Now, the temple that Solomon built, would you like, they've done some archaeology. They've actually dug up a picture that was taken uh, 3,000 years ago. And uh, this is the, the picture. Go ahead and put that picture up, guys. Um, the picture of the temple is, is that, and uh, that's an authentic, originated photo back in the day. And uh, it's cut away so you can kind of see what's on the inside. So let me describe to you this house that, uh, that Solomon built. And I'm doing this instead of reading for you chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, because there's a lot of detail. There's almost as much detail about the temple in your Bible as there is about Jesus, okay? There's so many intricate details. But uh, it was built by Solomon. It took him seven years to build. It was uh, built a, about a thousand years before Christ. And it lasted for about 400 years as the place of worship for God's people. But it's not there anymore. Why isn't it there anymore? Because of the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in, sent by God in judgment, and they destroyed Solomon's temple, burned it to the ground, plowed it to the ground. Just rubble. About 40 years after it was destroyed, God's people came back under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra. You have two books in your Bible, Nehemiah and Ezra in the Old Testament. And it's all this story about how they came back and they rebuilt the temple. But they were very sad because the temple did not have the glory that it had under Solomon. Well, that temple, the second temple, that lasted for several hundred years until about 20 years before Christ showed up. 
20 years before Bethlehem. Uh, at that time, the land of Israel was being ruled by the Roman king Herod. And King Herod was such an egomaniac. How many of you know an egomaniac? That everything he had, he had to have it bigger and badder than everybody else. And so he actually expanded the temple, not because he thought God was so awesome, but because he thought he was awesome and that was part of his thing. So he wanted to expand it. So that was 20 years before Christ. He kept expanding, kept expanding it. Jesus was born. He grew up. And so we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in our Bibles that Jesus went to the temple. Remember that story? Remember when he was 12 and his mom and dad lost him and they found him where? in the house of the Lord. And that was Herod's temple that was expanded. And then Jesus grew up and he actually one day said, hey, fellas, I got bad news. Um, um, that's going to get destroyed too. And so Jesus died on the cross, went to heaven. And sure enough, just as Jesus said, about 30 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, the Romans came and annihilated that temple didn't leave a stone upon a stone, just as Jesus predicted. It was the judgment of God because the Jewish people had rejected their Messiah. And so it was just rubble. If you go to the spot where the temple once was today, as, you, as I did in April, as President Trump did last month, what you will find there is there is a big, beautiful golden dome. If you didn't know any better, you'd think you were at Notre Dame. And is big golden dome. It's it's actually a an Islamic holy place, and it's called the Dome of the Rock. And it is built right on top of the rubble of the first temple and the second temple that was meant to be the meeting place for God. Now you may see sometimes you you hear about or you might see even President Trump went to this thing called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. Have you ever seen this thing? And these people, they go to the wall and they rock back and forth and they write prayer requests on pieces of paper and they put them in cracks of the wall. So the question is, what is that wall? Some people think it's a wall of the temple. It's not. It's a retaining wall that was built outside the temple. And uh, that's the last vestiges of anything that was around during the time of Jesus. And so it's a very holy place for Jewish uh, people there um, as they cling to the hope that one day the temple will be restored. Now, we as Christians, we read this story of this temple 3,000 years ago, and uh, the, even the stories of the temple that Jesus went to 2,000 years ago with some understanding that our Jewish friends don't have. And so we're going to see that here because there are some very specific important lessons that God wants us to know in relation to this epic building. Okay, that's all the historical stuff. So what are the lessons? Here is the first lesson, and it is epic. Here it is. God desires to dwell with His people. Do you understand what a mind-blowing thing that is? Because God is God, and you are not. How many of you like to hang out with people that are like you? God likes to hang out with people that are not like Him at all. And since there are no other gods to hang out with, guess what He has done? He has made a way for you to meet with Him. Let's look at it here in this unfolding story. Now I want you to flip over about three chapters. Find 1 Kings chapter 8. And let's read this story here. Um, all of the 
floor plan and the design and the decor and the furniture in the temple had significance. And uh, we begin to pick up the story in 1 Kings 8 verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, time out, you see the holy place was the innermost part of the temple. This was the place where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled, signifying the presence of God. There were two cherubim, angelic beings that hovered over the, uh, the Ark there. And so when the priest went in to, on the Day of Atonement, um, he was experiencing the holiest of holy places on earth at the time, the place where God dwelt. And so it says, when they came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory. What is this thing, the glory? What's your best thing? What's your best thing? The thing that people, I'm like, you're either cute or you're rich or you're athletic or you're smart or you got more money than anybody else. Whatever that is, that is your glory. The glory of God is his best thing. So what is God's best thing? He's perfect. So everything is his best thing. And so the glory is that which God has made known to us. It is his character and his nature emanating from himself. It is the self-disclosure of God. And it is a choice that God has made to come to where we are and make a way for us to know him. God longs to make himself known. And God invites you to meet with him. Do you like to go to meetings? I hate meetings. My staff can tell you I'm not a big fan of meetings. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, uh, it was about 7 in the morning, and I was enjoying a cup of coffee at, at the house. I was reading my Bible, and my phone buzzed. And it was, uh, it was actually 7.05. And it was a text from a friend of mine that I had scheduled a meeting with at 7 o'clock. We were supposed to meet for breakfast at, the, at a restaurant, and he was sitting at the restaurant, and he was just wondering, hey, are you coming? Now, that's awkward, right? Because if the meeting was important to me, I would have remembered, right? And so actually, I was close enough. I said, oh, I'll be right there. And I scrambled. I was there five minutes later, and I sat down for the meeting. But there was no way to recover from that, especially because of the fact that he came all the way from Texas uh, to meet me there. So... There's just, I mean, that's just, that's just bad, you know? Um, but here's something even worse. There is someone who has come a lot further distance to meet with you. And some of you don't bother showing up at all. God has gone to the trouble to bridge the distance from where he belongs to come to where we live. And he invites you to come and dwell in his presence. 3,000 years ago, that place was in the temple. 
Today, we're going to discover you can meet God anywhere at any time. And that's going to be the unfolding story here as the story goes on. But God desires to dwell with His people. Theologians call that the imminence of God. The fact that God is accessible. God has disclosed Himself. God has made a way for you to know Him. And so that was true 3,000 years ago. But we know that the meeting place of God and the place where the glory of God dwells now is where we read this story in John chapter 1, verse 14, a description of Jesus. And the Word became flesh. That means He became a baby. He became a man, muscle and sinew and hair. And He grew up and He dwelt among us. Does that word sound familiar? He dwelt among us. And we have seen His what? His glory. Does that sound familiar? The glory of God on display in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? The temple is no longer a place. The temple is now a person. And if you want to meet with God, you come through Jesus. And you see the glory of God on display in the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. Christ. God longs to meet with us. Now listen, if you're not a Christian, never been to church, you don't even believe the Bible, you're an atheist. You cannot deny that there is something within you. It shows up all the time in, in literature, in the best of our stories. There is something inside the heart of man that longs to connect with something in another world. For example, Alice in Wonderland. Alice in where? Wonderland. Out there somewhere, there is something off that I... And how does Alice get to Wonderland? Anybody know the story? The rabbit hole. Remember that? Do you understand that that is simply a reflection of the truth that man longs to meet with God? And the temple was the rabbit hole. It was the place to connect with God, something otherworldly. You see, not only is God imminent, He is also transcendent. That means that He's not like me. He is beyond comprehension. And even though God has disclosed much of His nature to us, enough for us to know Him, He's not disclosed everything. And so if I want to meet with Him, I have to go through the rabbit hole. People had to go to the temple to connect with the holiness of God. So maybe you're not a fan. Y'all didn't seem like you knew the story of Alice in Wonderland. Let me try illustration number two. Um, Chronicles of Narnia. Chronicles of what? Narnia. Yeah, that place on the other side. And, and Lucy had to go through the wardrobe to get to Narnia, to the other place. And there was a whole world for her to connect to. And you see, the temple is like the wardrobe. If you want to connect with God back in the day, you had to go through the temple, through the wardrobe to get to God. Some of you are still not tracking with me. You didn't, you've never read or seen Alice in Wonderland or Chronicles of Narnia. Third illustration. <laughs> The Matrix. So you got the red pill and the blue pill, okay? 
If you take the blue pill, you go to sleep, you wake up, and you can believe whatever you want to. Take the red pill. Now we're on the other side. Do you understand what the temple is all about? And do you understand that that is simply illustrating for us 3,000 years later if you want to see the glory, if you want to connect with something otherworldly, if you want to know the holy transcendent God, you have to go through the medium that he has provided. 3,000 years ago, it was the temple. Today, it is Jesus because we have seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. Point two, God wants to inspire my awe by his holiness. I want you to see here this incredible picture that he's put on display in this temple. Skip over here to 1 Kings chapter 8 and I want you to look um, at verse 23, Saul is praying a dedication prayer as, as the temple's been finished. And he says, Oh Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Skip down to verse 27. Solomon asked a very relevant question, a question you should be asking by now 10 minutes into this message. It says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? And he answers his own question. Behold, heaven, the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You see, the tragic mistake that we make as human beings is to think that God can somehow fit in our little dwelling place. It, we create boxes here for him to dwell in and he can only operate inside our parameters and our borders. But Solomon avoided that mistake by understanding, listen, I have built this place, but you, you are massively more transcendent than that. And the temple was designed to display that there was no other God like him. It was designed to display that God is holy. As a matter of fact, let me show you some of those things. Get back to chapter 6. I'm bouncing around here, but I'm doing that to avoid reading seven chapters of the Bible. But uh, I want you to look at here in chapter 6, verse 29. And notice the holiness on display in this temple. He describes the decor in this building. He says, chapter 6, verse 29, around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim. Cherubim. You know what that is? Those are angelic beings. So those were carved all over the walls. There were two of these cherubim, huge, in the holy place, the holy of holies, over the Ark of the Covenant. So when you saw those things, you were to be reminded, God is holy. And he's surrounded by angelic beings that cry day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so these cherubim, were all over the decor. Then he says there were also palm trees. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Palm trees. I've often tried to figure out how to get a palm tree growing in my yard here in northern Indiana. I'm a fan of palm trees. Palm trees. And then he says open flowers. 
in the inner and the outer rooms. The floor of the house was overlaid with gold in the inner and the outer rooms. So you have a gold floor. And then verse 32 says, He covered the two doors with olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers and overlaid them with gold, spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So do you, do you see what's happening here? We have cherubim, palm trees, and flowers poured over with gold. I don't know what your house looks like, but that's pretty impressive. If you took a step in the inner court, from the outer court into the inner court, into the holy place, into the holy of holies, with every step you were to be reminded of the awesomeness of God and the awfulness of sin. That God is holy and I am not. So what's up with the palm trees? You know what God is pointing to? Remember, this is the first time there's been rest on every side and there's no adversary and there's no turmoil. When was the last time that was true? In the opening pages of our Bible. When we find man dwelling with God, where? In a garden. What's in the garden? Palm trees and open flowers and the presence, the glory of God. And so here we are thousands of years from the Garden of Eden and God is pointing back to the fact that He is a God that loves to dwell with man. And that ought to inspire all in me that God would want to have a meeting with me. And today, every time you come to meet with God, the same truths ought to happen. You ought to see the awesomeness of God and the awfulness of sin. If you come to church and you stick around for an hour and a half and you go home and you don't see a little bit more of the awesomeness of God or the awfulness of sin, either you failed or I failed or we both failed because that's what a meeting with God is to be about, seeing the awesomeness of God and the awfulness of sin. Here's the third thing God wants us to learn from this temple. God wants to hear our collective prayers of forgiveness. Look at verse 46, back in chapter 8. Flip the pages. Don't, don't, don't quit on me here. Go back to chapter 8. Skip down to verse 46. Solomon's still praying this dedication prayer, but now he's going to mention sin in verse 46. If they sin against you, he might as well have used the word when, because the next phrase said, for there's no one who doesn't sin. There's no one who doesn't sin, but if they sin against you and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of their enemy far off or near, yet if they turn their hearts in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned and we have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and, to, and the house that I have built for your name, 
Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Every time you get in the presence of God, you need to confess your sin. Every time you come to the house of the Lord, every time you see the glorious, holy nature of Jesus, you've got to confess your sin again. If you come to the place of worship and an hour and a half later you walk out of the place of worship and you have not confessed your sin and asked for forgiveness of sin and been cleansed of sin and motivated to avoid sin the next week, then you haven't met with God. If you claim to meet with God and yet do not deal with sin, you haven't met with God. You may have met with your friend at church. You may have met with a teacher or a kid or a parking lot attendant. You didn't meet with God. And so our goal every time we come to the place of worship is to get in the presence of God and confess our sin. Do you remember when Jesus went into the temple one day and he found money changers there? They were selling pigeons and sacrifices and things like that. That in and of itself was not a bad thing. They were doing a service for the people that had come from long distances so they didn't have to bring all their animals with them. How many of you don't take your animals on vacation? So they, they left them at home and so they, they could purchase them when they got to the temple. But the problem was is they were overcharging and they'd completely lost the whole understanding of what everything meant at, in the sacrifices. Do you remember what Jesus did? He made a whip... And he started whipping the money changers in the house of the Lord. Share that with your children at bedtime tonight. (laughs) That doesn't sound like the loving Jesus that I know. Listen, Jesus is holy. And what was happening in that place was not holy. And so he drove out the money changers. And do you know what he said then? He said, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer. So the place of worship is a place for us to gather, to confess our sin, and to acknowledge that we need a meeting with God. Here's the fourth thing that we learn. God desires my undivided worship. God desires my undivided worship. So let's think back historically to what was happening here. Now up until this time, The people of God were just worshiping God in whatever way they could find. And you see all these stories of people building little altars over here and building a little altar over there and over here. Why did God require them to cut that stuff out and come to one place to worship one God in one way? He's like, you're going to have to travel now to the place of Jerusalem. This will be the place where God will dwell. This will be the place that you offer your sacrifices. This will be the one place you come to worship. Why? I believe it's because God knows the human heart is prone to worship anything at any time in any place. And God wanted to unify their divided hearts to come and understand there is one God to be worshipped in one way 
in one place. Remember, at the time, historically, they were being surrounded by all kinds of idol worshipers, polytheists. And they'd worship the moon, and they'd worship the sun, and they'd worship the grass, and they'd worship the palm tree, and they'd worship a building, and they'd worship themselves. And God knows our hearts are still like that. So He wanted to to draw their divided hearts, their misdirected worship to come to the place where God could be most fully known in the temple. Can I ask you this week? Did your heart try to worship something other than God? Oh, not me. I'm not an idol worshiper. Now listen, you have to understand what worship is. Worship is anything, or an idol is anything that you think about more, that you love more, that you worry about more, that you fear more than God. And your heart starts going after that. And God knows our hearts are prone to do that. So He calls us back to unify our hearts, to focus on Him and understand that idol worship kills love for God. Now again, the temple's not there anymore. So what is it that prevents idol worship today? Let me show you this verse. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 because even though there's not a temple in Jerusalem... There are still temples. Notice who the temples are. What does it say? We are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then he asked an incredibly important question. This is New Testament. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Answer, no agreement, just argument. And so the living God argues with the dead gods, with little G's, that we try to worship every day. There's an argument going on. God wants all of your worship. He wants to bring all of your worship to the place where his dwelling place is most fully known. And that is right here. So where is the temple today? Point to the temple. It's, we, now, let's be real clear. Is this the temple? Is the church building the temple? No. Is the church the temple? No. You and I, our bodies are the temple And as we receive Christ, the Spirit of the living God comes to live on the inside of us. And you know what it does? It's arguing with the idols in our life. And so we have to make sure our hearts are not idol factories. He's drawing us back to the meeting place every day to cast out the idols. Fifth point, God desires our unified worship. Now notice the first That last point, I said, God desires my undivided worship. That's individual. This one's collective. God desires our unified worship. You see, getting to this temple was quite a task for the people of God. They had to come from the north to south, the east and the west, and they had to make preparation to get there. But all the effort that it took to get them there, what was it doing? It was unifying them. People they never would have had contact with had to come from all corners of Israel to the place of worship. And in the midst of their vertical worship, what was happening? 
they were creating horizontal community with one another. And the Bible even tells us that just as we are temples, we're not just temples individually, we're a temple collectively. Look at this verse in Ephesians 2. He says, In Him you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Question, is the church the temple of God? Oh, I tricked you, didn't I? He's like, well, no, the church building is not a temple, but is the church the temple of God? Absolutely. And so if you're a part of the church, do you know what the Bible calls you? A living stone. That's over in 1 Peter. You're a living stone, just like they had to cut the stones and bring them together to put a wall together. Two stones, three stones, stone on top of those stones. Pretty soon these stones become a wall, and you put that wall with another wall and two other walls and put a roof on top. What do you have? You have a building. You are a stone. And when you don't show up for church, do you know what happens? We got holes in the wall. We got holes in the ceiling. And in case you didn't know, we do this every week. Some of you, have, you thought we only did this once a month. No, we do this every week. And we need you here to complete the dwelling place of God. Do you understand what's going on in our worship? We're not only doing vertical worship, we're doing horizontal community as we do the vertical worship. We interact with one another. Understand the temple's no longer a place. The temple is a people. And wherever the people of God gather, God sends His glory there. And if you come to church and thinking, I hope I get something out of this today, you missed it. Because God's looking at you and thinking, I hope I get something out of this today. The temple is not for you. The temple is for Him. He loves to meet with His people. And think about it. All the, the, the floor plan of the temple invited you to take your next step into community. It started with the outer courts and people coming from the north and the south and, and they're just gathering around and, and then they take a step closer into the place until the, the high priest is in the holy place. Do you know the same thing happens when you come to worship here? Again, worship doesn't happen in a building. Worship happens in a people and as the people gather, God wants to show His glory. But if, if you're going to worship correctly, we need to expend no less effort than Solomon did in building this temple. We've got to prepare to worship. And the first thing you do to prepare for worship is make it a priority. Question, is worship the highest priority of your life? Here's how you know whether or not it is. If anybody ever asks you on Saturday night, are we going to church tomorrow? then it's not the highest priority. Because somehow there's a question as to whether or not we're going to worship God or we're going to worship sports or we're going to worship grandma or we're going to worship TV or something else. Listen, worship's the highest priority. If you want to have a meeting with God, the second thing you have to do is prepare to worship. I always tell our membership class, by the way, tonight, 5 o'clock, Making Harvest My Home, if you're not yet connected as a living stone to our church. You need to be there. You need to become a member of a local 
body so that we can together complete the dwelling place of God. And I always tell people in that class, make worship a priority, but you're going to have to prepare to get here because getting to church is hard. Now, I realize I'm talking to the 1130 service for crying out loud. And guess which service is the latest to arrive? Really, you chose the 11.30 service, but you couldn't get here till 11.37. That's amazing. The people in the 8 o'clock service are like, what's wrong with those people, you know? And they've already had lunch by the time you guys show up. So anyway, am I on a soapbox right now? Anyway, if you're going to make it to church on time, I tell people, I have seven people in my family. It's a little difficult to get all the people at church at the same time. It, can I get a witness? Without killing each other in the process. <laughs> making sure that nobody has body over and maybe they have a copy of a Bible with them, right? So it takes some preparation. I tell people in order for us to get to church on time, we have to prepare to get to church on time at 5 o'clock p.m. on Thursday <laughs> because there's a lot involved in getting here, but if it's a priority and you're going to prepare, not, not only that, you have to prepare what you're going to bring. You, have, you bring your worship. You bring your brain. You bring your heart. You bring your sin. You bring your prayer. You bring a song. You bring a smile. You, you bring an offering. You bring money. <laughs> Not to give to me or to anybody. You give it to the Lord because he's worthy of all of it. And you've got a greater need to give it than he's got a need to receive it. He doesn't need it. He, but you need to pry your greedy little fingers off of it to show it's not an idol. That's how we prioritize worship. And then to understand the progression that we go through when we get here. Just like they had an outer court, we have an outer court. It's called a parking lot and you arrive and you smile at the person that's directing you to the parking spot that they'd like you to sit in and you smile at the usher who's put the ropes up and said please don't sit there because we have people that arrive late and we want you to sit down here and you smile and you you agree and you love your pastor enough to sit in the first three rows because these people are loved by their pastor more than everybody in the back <laughs> and because you helped me get this thing done so it's all it's all the gathering in the outer courts and we're we're, we're acknowledging that this is they, we're so glad to be here. It's exactly what the psalmist said in Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And as we gather, there's a gladness and we're talking about what God did in our week and we actually make eye contact with one another. All the introverts are freaking out right now. And it's like, we're, we're, we're doing this together. And then once we get here from the first note of the first song, do you notice the first song is usually a happy song? It's like, we're happy to be here. We're glad. But then it changes a little bit in the progression. And you, you, you would be blown away by the intentionality of the progression of the song. We're, we're calling each other to worship. And so we're singing songs like, we've gathered in your name. We've waited for this day. Show us, show us your glory. And we're inviting God into the dwelling place. And, and then it progresses to where we're sharing testimony about how good God is and what God has done. This we know. We will see the enemy run. This we know. We will see the victory come. And we're singing to one another, encouraging, don't give up. Stay in the fight. Stay faithful. But then it changes to pretty soon. We're not singing about ourselves at all. 
and we drop the personal program, personal pronouns in the songs. Have you ever noticed that? And by the time we get to the last song, we have moved from the outer court to the inner court to the holy place to the holy of holies to where the songs we're singing include things like worthy, holy, and we're just making a scription to the character of God. And so we don't just pick a few songs and make sure they're in the right key so we can sing them. We are walking into the place of glory just as they did in the temple in Solomon's day. Here's the final thing. In the temple, God is pointing me to a better dwelling place. Need to move quickly here, but I want you to understand that we don't need a temple anymore. We don't need a building because we have Jesus. Look at this verse in Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, was Christ a high priest? I mean, did, did he wear the garments and go in there? No, but he's acknowledged as the true and better high priest who did what? the high priest of good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent. Was Jesus a tent? Was Jesus a temple? He was the greater and more perfect tent, the greater and the more perfect temple, not made with hands that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy place not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, securing the eternal redemption. Do you understand that Christ was the true and the better high priest? Christ was the true and the better sacrificial lamb. Christ was the true and the better dwelling place of God. All of that we read of the temple that was built by Solomon is pointing to the true and better temple that is Christ. And then we finally get to the last page of our Bible. You have to say, finally, one of these days we're going to get there. But on the last page of the Bible, we read something. It's a future vision that God gives to the Apostle John of what it's going to be like in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And this is what John said. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place... Sound familiar? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. That's what we read on the first page of the Bible. And here we are on the last page of the Bible... In the future coming kingdom of God, He will dwell with His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. One of these days, we're not going to need a temple. We are going to be with Him in His manifest presence forever and ever. And the last part of that chapter says this, And I saw no temple in that city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. Do you desire to have a meeting with God? When you come to the meeting with God, are you overwhelmed by His awesomeness and overwhelmed by your sin's awfulness? When you come to your meeting to God, do you confess your sin, seek forgiveness of sin, 
receive new cleansing from sin and a new desire to avoid sin. If not, you haven't seen His glory. Have you seen His glory? Have you shown up for the meeting that God longs to have with you? Let me ask you to bow your heads. And would you just answer those questions in your heart right now? Maybe you say, I I don't know if I've ever had a meeting like that. You can have one right now. We've gathered in His name. He is in the process of manifesting His glory in this dwelling place. Not this room, but in your heart among the gathered people of God. Would you respond to Him right now? Humble yourself. Acknowledge His holiness. Maybe you just just ask Him, God, would you show me your glory? I'm so tired of just going through the motions of religion. Tired of just taking notes. I'm tired of just showing up, but I don't ever see you show up. Would you show me your glory? The moment that my heart is tempted to worship something other than you, in that moment, show me your glory. Why don't you confess, Lord, I am prone to worship anything at any time in any place. And I want you to unify my heart in worship to you. Lord, thank you that uh, we don't have to go to a geographical place on the planet to have a meeting with you. Through Jesus, you've given us access to the transcendent holiness of God. So God, we humble ourselves. We confess the awfulness of our pride, our independent spirit, our rebellion, our idolatry, our immorality. God, we show up in your presence to receive a new cleansing. Forgive us, Lord. We turn our hearts back to you. Would you cleanse us, make us holy. And Lord, continually show us your glory. Let's sing that phrase to the Lord. Make it your prayer.